the message this morning, just a brief message to uh, follow up last week's sermon. If you weren't here last week, we were looking at Judah going into exile. God has brought Judah into Babylon. And he tells them prophetically through Jeremiah the prophet, you are going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And while you are here, you need to be about the business of worshiping the true God. Have families, plant gardens, build homes. Get back to doing the things you were supposed to be doing in Israel. Get back to worshiping the true God and living life according to his commands. And in that way, you will be salt and light to the Babylonian empire. You're not to live as Babylonians. You're not to wring your hands and fret and just give up on on life. And so in the same way, we were drawing parallels that as Christians now living in a country that is quickly becoming very unchristian. It is like we are living in exile in Babylon. And so we need instruction from God's word as how we should live as exiles in this Babylonian nation. Now I know the parallels aren't exactly one to one, but there's some principles we can draw here. Remember the reason Judah was sent into exile was because they had forsaken God and they they began serving foreign gods. By serving foreign gods, we have made the case from the pulpit. It's not just idol worship. It's everything that comes with religion. Religion is all about defining reality, defining who God is, who man is, what man's purpose is, what man is supposed to do, how man is supposed to approach God. We, we also call this a worldview, or we've been calling it a meta-narrative, a story that explains all other stories. And Israel's problem was that they rejected the true God, rejected true religion, rejected true philosophy, rejected the true meta-narrative, and replaced it with really whatever was convenient. Whatever was convenient for them. And what that ends up doing is making yourself your own God. You now define reality. You define right and wrong. You define man. You define your purpose. You define what ought to make you happy and fulfilled. And none of these things are true unless they're aligned with God's truth. And so by extension, this is really the problem with the whole human race is that we've replaced God with ourselves. And so God said to Judah, in essence, you are going to go to Babylon and you're going to find out just what it's like to serve these foreign gods. And you're not going to be able to do it the way you want to do it. You're going to be in captivity. You're going to be slaves to these people. You are going to find out um, that life apart from God wasn't the party you thought it was going to be. And we see that played out in the Bible again and again most prominently in the story of the prodigal son where God the Father sends the son out and said, go experience life apart from the Father. And when the money runs out and your friends abandon you and you're wallowing in a pigsty, you will realize that everything the world had to offer was nothing but smoke and mirrors, empty dreams, false promises, 
The devil never delivers on what he promises. It's always a bait and switch. And so Israel or Judah will experience this while in exile so that when they return to the land, their hearts reset towards worshiping the true God. Paul makes this connection in Philippians 3, uh, 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. In essence, he's saying, as believers, we are in exile. Earth is not our home. America is not our, our, our home. As believers, our true home is heaven. And we're living here in exile for a time. And I know that in as much as America used to live biblically, and that made it easier to walk with God and easier to follow God, and, and it has even given us great privileges and luxuries here in America. Never forget that this isn't your final home, your final destination. And so even though our country is sliding, it, you don't need to fret. It was never your final home. You have something so much better waiting for you in heaven. Furthermore, Paul says, we're in exile in these fallen bodies. These fallen bodies. So don't get it too attached to your body. And if you're young, that's a hard message. If you're old, an easy message to hear. You are ready to let go of this body and get that resurrection body. And so we're in exile here in these bodies. But it's not just that these bodies are frail and they get diseased. These bodies still have a residual sin nature that tempt us to do exactly what Israel did and and reject God and go our own way. And we yearn, we groan, all creation groans for that day when full redemption comes. And we, we live in heaven and we have those resurrection bodies with no more sin entangling us. We can finally worship God the way He deserves. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4, don't walk anymore like the Gentiles which is synonymous for unbelievers, for Babylonians. Don't walk that way anymore. You've put that life behind you. You are pressing on towards the prize of the upward call. You are, should be growing in sanctification. You should be putting off the old man, putting on the new man in Christ. You should be repenting of thinking about life the way you want to think about it and retrain your mind to think about life the way God has revealed life really is. He says, don't live like the Gentiles. Don't walk like them in the futility of their mind. Their thoughts are futile. They don't lead to ultimate truth. Oh, yes, a blind squirrel finds a nut here and there, right? A broken clock is right twice a day. But that's no way to live life as believers. We have everything we need for life and godliness revealed to us in this word. And if we're true believers, the Holy Spirit has regenerated us and give us a, a, a new nature that is able to understand the Bible and live it out. And so, don't be darkened in your understanding. Don't be excluded from the life of God because of ignorance and hardness of heart. So what I wanted to do briefly today was just introduce you to some of the ways that the Gentiles think. 
This is the way um, people think when they're not thinking biblically. This is the way the natural man thinks. And know this, that because there's still residual sin, a residual sin nature in your life, you're tempted to think this way. And you're living in a culture that wants you to think this way. We are swimming upstream, brothers and sisters. And it gets tiring. It gets exhausting. I always think of those salmon going upstream to spawn. And when they get there, they die. And... uh, Hey, when we get there, we die, and then we go to heaven and live eternally. So, if earth was all there was, then why swim upstream? But because this is just a momentary light affliction, as Paul calls it, compared to the eternal weight of glory, we can swim upstream. So, I think you'll recognize some of the things that I say this morning, because we've all thought this way, and we're learning not to think this way anymore. Number one, and, and, and the, the one I'll spend the most time on, uh, the unregenerate mind says, I am who I think I am, or I am who I feel I am. You're going to hear this term a lot in our culture, I self-identify. I self-identify as a fill-in-the-blank. Whatever I think will make me happy or get me the notoriety I want, the special attention I want. And of course, in our pride and our fallenness, we want all the attention, all the glory. And no better way to, to get attention than to convince yourself you have some kind of designation that makes you different than the world. Of course, with everybody claiming to be different, nobody will be different eventually. And so you're just going to see the self-designations getting more and more and more bizarre and absurd. Only God has the right to say, I am who I am. In fact, that's his name, Yahweh, I am. He told Moses, I am who I am. I never change. God doesn't sit around thinking, well, what would I like to be today? He's perfect Why would he change? He doesn't need to change. He doesn't need to conform to another standard. He is the standard. Paul says in the New Testament, when people make fun of him for his shortcomings, he says, by the grace of God, I am who I am. That is what we should say as Christians. By the grace of God, I am who I am. I need to be satisfied with the way God made me, the gifts and talents He's given me, and don't envy other people's gifts and talents. Don't get mad at God because you're not taller or prettier or more athletic or more musically talented or smarter or whatever. He is putting the body together and He knows exactly what the body needs. Be content with your gifts and talents and the way God has made you, but don't be content with your sin nature. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying, hey, this is me. Take it or leave it. No. When Paul says, I am who I am by the grace of God, he's saying, I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. God accepts me in Christ Jesus, adopted me into his family, and has commissioned me to spread the gospel. And so Paul 
identified himself the way God identifies him. And that's what we need to do as believers. Recently saw a video, a man on the street survey of University of Washington students. And the man was a, a man about five foot nine with a full beard. And he was asking people, what if I want to identify as a woman? And they all said, well, okay, that's your right. Well, what if I want to be a, a, a Chinese woman? I don't have a drop of, of, of Chinese blood in my body, but I really fancy myself a Chinese woman. And they're like, well, okay, I'm, okay, if that's what you want to be. You could see them struggling because they're like, well, that would be offensive to Chinese people. But right now, the overriding virtue in our country is let people be whoever they self-identify as. And the worst thing you could be is someone who doesn't agree with somebody's self-identification. Now you're a hater, a bigot, closed-minded. How dare you live in reality? <laughs> he said, what if I want to be a, female, a Chinese female first grader and I want to go to school back into the first grade? They said, well, you know, at the right school, if they should let, let you do that. College students who don't have children of their own if they had a first grader, they'd be horrified if a bearded adult man was sitting in the classroom with their first grader and going to the bathroom during recess with them. No, those people should be in a different institution, and they should be getting help. We should not be um, enabling this. It, it's a sickness. It's wrong. It's hurtful to them to think that way about themselves. And in love, we should speak truth in love and help these people, not pass laws to have them stuck in self-deception. Finally, he said, can I be a female first grade Chinese six foot five woman? And finally, he found someone that said, no, you're clearly not six foot five. Like, so that's where we're drawing the line. You know, reality kicks in on your height. Our culture's been so conditioned to not burst anyone's fantasy bubble that you're going to appear strange to the world when you go, what? You need to define yourself the way God defines you. And that includes not only, I'm made in the image of God, therefore I have ultimate dignity. This is how this nation used to think of people. It's what helped end slavery. Everyone is made in the image of God and has ultimate dignity. We should identify as sinners saved by grace, adopted into the family of God. We're slaves of Christ. We deny ourselves each day and we pick up our cross and follow our master, but we're, we're not abused slaves. Christ also calls us friends. He lets us in on his plans. We get to read his personal thoughts. It's a good kind of slave to be. If, if you're a man, you let the Bible define what manhood looks like. If you're a woman, you let the Bible define what womanhood looks like. You don't let the culture define those things. Even though the culture used to kind of define those things biblically, we can't count on the culture anymore to define these things. And we probably should, shouldn't have shouldn't have leaned on the culture to define these things. We should have always been going back to the Bible for our definitions. When you get married, 
You let the Bible define what marriage is and what your role as husband and wife is, even on those days where you don't feel so much like being husband and wife. You say, no, I don't get to redefine what it means to be a husband and a wife. It's till death do us part. If you're a father or a mother, you let the Bible define those roles. When I became a pastor and was ordained, I realized that was God's calling on my life. He owns me. He redeemed me. He's designated me pastor, and I can't decide what pastoring ought to look like. I need to go to God's Word to define what pastoring ought to be. Number two, I may do bad things, but I'm not a bad person. Al Mohler tells a story about some kids in college caught cheating. professor called him into the office. He had the evidence. They admitted that they had cheated, and technically cheating is wrong, but that they weren't cheaters. And he said, evidently, you are. <laughs> and what they're trying to say is, please don't, don't define me as a cheater. I, I'm a really a good person, and most of the time I do good things, and I, I just slipped up this time, and so... That's not really cheating. And I, I run into this in when I'm discipling folks. I run into this in my own heart. If we're going to think of ourselves in categories of either I'm, I'm a good person or a bad person, you leave no room for confessing sin and repenting. And so couples will come in and, you know, he did this and she did that. And, and you know, he, he lied to me and, and uh, well, she hit me and... She, I'm not a violent person. I'm not a liar. Well, apparently you guys are. You know, just confess it. What you're saying is in that moment, you chose to sin. But in Christ, we're redeemed, we're loved, we're forgiven, and we can confess that, yes, we still sin, but no longer does God declare me sinner. In Christ, He declares me righteous. And yet, I am, he is not finished with me. I'm a work in progress. And now I can admit to my sins, turn from them, and grow in Christ. I just, I like that one. You get pulled over, I'm going to use that. Get pulled over. How fast are you going? You know, but I'm not a speeder. I self-identify as a law-abiding citizen. Number three, something is wrong with me, but it's not my fault. It's my nature or my nurture. I have some kind of mental disorder or disability. Let me be clear here. I'm not saying that there are not such things as mental disorders and disabilities. It's just that our culture now has no category for owning up to its mistakes and shortcomings. And so being a victim is a much more convenient label than sinner. And we've talked about this from the pulpit many times. But victimhood is, is so in right now. It's so in. And you've got to make up stuff so you can trump the next victim. And victims deserve special treatment and they deserve special protection. And it, it would be cruel and mean for you go, to go up to a victim and say, I disagree with you or you're wrong. <gasps> I'm already hurting. How could you kick me while I'm down? The, the new DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual for Psychology and Psychiatry, 
That's quite a read. The, the definitions of mental disorders and syndromes are so broadly defined now that you and everyone in this room could probably find five or six. You know, you go on the internet and you start reading the list of things and you're like, I have that. <laughs> Fatigue, apathy. You know, we'll convince ourselves that we have just about anything. And the natural man will not own up to our sin. And if we have a way to describe our sin as I'm just a victim, we will find that way. And our culture is encouraging us to do that very thing. As Christians, we need to say, my sin is my responsibility. Yes, my nature and my nurture, my genetics and my upbringing influence the way I think and act, but I don't have to think and act those ways anymore. In Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and with the Bible as my guide, I can begin the process of changing the way I think and I act. And yet, at the same time, I can extend grace to people around me knowing it's hard to overcome nature and nurture. We've got some ingrained ways of thinking and acting that don't just go away overnight. So give people time. You want grace extended to you, Extend grace to others. But grace should never come in the form of making excuses for one another. Number four, something must have happened to me. I need a diagnosis. I need a label. I need therapy or medication. I kind of covered that with number three. Number five, I may need help. Okay, okay, I may need help, but I get to tell you how you have to help me. Oh, this is tiring. And usually the way they want you to help them is exactly what they were doing already that got them in the mess in the first place. And you want to say, gee, you tried that. How, how is that working for, for you? The worst is when they say, if you don't agree with me and meet my demands, you don't love me. I'm finding that I have to have this conversation even with believers that if I don't agree with you, can I still love you? Let's just lay the groundwork right now because people have a knee-jerk reaction to as soon as you disagree with them, you don't love me. Man, there's no room for change then or honest debate or disagreement or even preferences. Number six, morality is a good idea, but I'm not sure what exactly it is. And I get to change my mind whenever it's convenient for me. A group of our youth went to Berkeley, as you know, on kind of an apologetics trip, met Berserkleyites, the professors and the the students. These are some of the best and brightest people in our nation at at Berkeley. And, And that's not a joke. They're intelligent people, but in their unbelief, God calls us fools. We believe absurd things, and boy, did our students go, wow, these people can't think their way out of a paper bag. Um, It's crazy. Like, I can't believe they think this way. And it wasn't just things about the Bible. It was just, where where do morals come from? How do you know what's right and wrong? Well, if the majority of the people think this is right, then that's what's right. Really? Well, what about in Hitler's Germany? The majority of the people thought it was right to exterminate Jews and gypsies and homosexuals. Well, that's obviously wrong. Well, but the majority said, 
well, okay, sometimes the majority is wrong and the minority is right. Well, how do you know when the minority is right? Well, you'll just know. In other words, when I, the minority, thinks this is right, that's when it's right. And when you live surrounded by other people who live and think and breathe and believe the way you do, like on a college campus, you can begin to convince yourself of just about anything. And you, as a biblically informed Christian, are going to walk into this culture and go, What? How can you live that way? And we understand you can't live that way for long. Eventually, the system comes crashing in on itself. Unfortunately, it often comes crashing in in scary ways. And in the mess and in the anarchy, fascism tends to come in and say, I will decide what's right and wrong, and I'll use force to make everybody agree with me. Uh, Seven, some version of karma is in effect. So good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And then the world is dumbfounded when they think they're a good person and something bad happens to them. They don't have a category for that. And even if they're unbelievers, in that moment they get angry at the God they don't believe in for letting something bad happen to such a good person. The problem with this way of thinking is that there's no room for grace. Grace, the message of the gospel tells us that rotten people end up getting the ultimate gift that they don't deserve. If everybody's walking around thinking they're good people and and pretty much that's everybody's mindset, then who needs to repent? Who needs the gospel? Who needs grace? We shouldn't be thinking this way as Christians. God is sovereign. He's good. He's just and merciful. We're living on a fallen, cursed planet. Bad things will happen to good people. And a lot of times, good things happen to bad people. But in Christ, I don't get the wrath I deserve. Instead, I get God's grace and favor. Number eight, people are generally good except mean people. (laughs) I'm not... uh, You're laughing, but this is the world we're living in now. People are generally good except these mean people. And the mean people are people with biblical convictions, people who don't agree with me, people who tell me I'm wrong, people who tell me no, rich people, Republicans, whatever you want to define as mean people. And Republicans do it to Democrats. They're the mean people. It's not a biblical category, mean people. All people are sinners. But all people being made in the image of God are capable of thinking and doing good things. The Bible just says that they're not doing it for the right reasons. So yeah, we see unbelievers doing good things out there. Charities and nonprofits. But that doesn't change your standing before God. Only through faith in Christ can you be declared righteous. And then God gives us the power to choose the good. Our motives even begin to change. God doesn't want to just change our outward behavior. He wants to change our heart and change even our motives. Number nine, there isn't just one way or a best way or even a better way of anything. Except the way I want things to be, of course. 
This is radical pluralism, radical multiculturalism. All religions are equally valid. All cultures are equally valid. All ideas, all philosophies are equally valid. That is absurd. There is no way that could be true. There is no way that could be true if two value systems are opposed to each other. They can't both be right. They could both be wrong. And so our culture says it believes this and wants to live this way, and then they don't live this way because you can't live this way. You walk in as the Christian and immediately they say, hey, all worldviews are equally valid except yours. Get that one out of here. Oh, there you go. You've just refuted your own philosophy. Now, the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through Him. God has revealed in the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ the best way to think and act. And don't deceive yourself into thinking that right now you've got it all down and everything you say and do is the best way to think and act. Come on, people. Nobody's to glory yet. But that's our standard. That's our goal. I am to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm to think his thoughts after him and live the way he lived. And that, indeed, is the best way to live. And we won't be apologetic about it, but we're not going to get in people's faces because Christ did everything with humility. And we adorn the truth with love and grace and humility. Yet we're, we're not going to join the world in saying, hey, this This Christianity is just one of many wonderful ways to live life. That is is not true. God does not give us that message. Finally then, how how do Gentiles or the world think about God? Uh, We've used this term from the pulpit before. Moralistic therapeutic deists. Huge study done. Thousands of, of Christians, people who call themselves Christians, and at the end of the day, asking them many, many, many questions about their faith and beliefs, it kind of boiled down to this squishy, nebulous view of religion. Moralistic, therapeutic deists. What does that mean? Moralistic. God, whoever that is, people say they believe in God, don't, you're not done evangelizing. Who's this God? Tell me about your God. What is he like? What does he expect from us? What has he done for us? God is an explanation when you don't feel like wrestling with hard things. So God's a convenient explanation. You know, well, you know God. Well, who's in charge of it? Well, you know God. Well, what's this God like? I, you know, I don't know. But I do know that He's he wants me to be good. And... Um, I am good, so God's happy with me. Right? That's the opposite of the gospel. And yet, this is the default position of people in our country. I'm a good person. Whoever this God is wants me to be good, and he says that I am good. God uh, is therapeutic. He's my great therapist in the sky. He's available in case of emergencies. Remember, all the churches were packed after 9-11, And then a few months later, attendance levels went back to normal. He's my therapist in the sky who tells me what I want to hear about myself. 
You know, he affirms everything that I think about myself. And finally, uh, he's deistic. Yes, God's out there, but he doesn't really act in the world, and especially not in my life personally. He's hands off. It's really technology, science, and human ingenuity that is going to solve all of our problems. So we spend more time on the computer than in prayer, because that's where all the answers are. This is how not to think, just in case anyone didn't get that part at the beginning of the message. We are no longer to think this way anymore. This is the way the natural man thinks. I share these with you so you know how to interact with the world, with the gospel, and not to be shocked like, whoa, these people are weird. No, they're just thinking the way you would think if you went on autopilot and stopped intentionally thinking biblical thoughts. So let's pray for ourselves and the world we live in. Father God, what a wonderful day. So much to celebrate, and all because of you, all because of your grace. Thank you for not just leaving us down here helpless and hopeless, but for coming down here personally in the person of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, giving us your word so we know truth, know how to be saved, and know how to live lives pleasing to you. Help us do just that, Lord, and help us to bring this message to a lost and confused world. Now, send us on our way uh, today, Lord. May we continue to celebrate you all day long and throughout the week. Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.